0: What's up, guys? This is Nate with Rooted in Revelation, and with me is uh, another co-host, Sam. What's up, man? Hey, man. How's it going? Good, good. And with us, we have a, a pretty impressive, brilliant guest. Chris Bolt is with us. Um, what is up, Chris?
1: Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. Thanks for coming, man. So. Yeah, so before we hop into the topic of, of kind of maybe talking about epistemology and hermeneutics and uh, just ideas of interpretation and things of that nature, would you like to maybe explain a little bit about how the Lord rescued you and um, brought you to where you are now?
1: Yeah, I profess uh, faith in Christ at a very young age. Um, it was through my mother that I did so. She had been my Sunday school teacher from the time I was just a young child and uh, grew up in a Christian family and everything. Very, very high view of scripture uh, as the ultimate authority. And um, anyway, I remember her sitting down with me and uh, sharing with me that the reason Jesus came to die was for sinners and uh, And that I was a sinner, even though on the outside I looked all right, seemed like a pretty good kid, and all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, she went through the Romans road with me with me and all of that. And uh, I remember understanding the gospel, why Jesus came to die and was raised again, and uh, i I believe that I repented of my sins and placed my faith in Christ. I remember the emotions, the changed will and desires and all those sorts of things from that um yeah and so that's that's how it started as far as my conversion
0: cool good stuff and then so growing up then what would you end up i think uh you're a pastor correct
1: i am i am
0: you're a pastor how that all play out you just went through high school and you're like uh I want to lead a yeah, flock.
1: That, that would be, I mean, that's a fairly long story, um, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, was around, it was around college age that I sensed a call to ministry uh, internally and began speaking with mentors, pastors, missionaries, and they kind of guided me in the right direction on that. And through some various ministries I was involved in teaching college and career, for example, uh, and then eventually doing ministry on college campus uh through all of that i discerned that i was being called to pastoral ministry and uh, eventually yeah i announced to the church uh, my intention to attend seminary and yeah the rest is history i guess
0: yeah yeah, and uh, you're also, uh, you said a professor as well, on top of being a pastor, right? And where, where do you do that at? I've uh, taught
1: at several different schools. There was one uh, that was around since, I believe, 1972, originally created to train pastors. Um, and then over the years, they kind of changed. So they became more of a, of a college and then eventually just went to the master's program and certificates and that sort of thing. So I taught there for a while. That was legacy. Uh, They did close their doors eventually. Um, And then I've taught for Birmingham Theological Seminary for, oh, a while now, since 2013, I believe. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be doing so some more in the future. And uh, I I did teach for Level College through New Orleans Seminary as well.
0: but uh yeah so nice cool yeah so Chris how do you just I mean I guess one last like I guess personal question but how how do you find how do you stumble across uh presuppositional apologetics like what's your what was your intro to uh to getting into apologetics specifically presuppositional
1: When I began to take my faith more seriously, especially around those college years, I was very curious about why it was that I would believe these things that I happened to believe were true, especially when there is no other system or worldview or philosophy or religion that I thought was true. I was uh, very concerned with that question. Okay, so how do I know that this is the right one and that sort of thing? So I began to find this whole discipline of apologetics, and I had some good mentors uh, where I went to church, uh, some who were trained philosophers and apologists, and they began to guide me in some right directions and everything. Uh, The very first book that I read that really uh, got to what I was trying to figure out was Mere Christianity. Uh, by C.S. Lewis, and I was given that on Christmas Eve. I stayed up that entire night and read the whole book because I couldn't, I couldn't stop. Um, and then later on, there's some other books: *Truth Decay* by uh, Douglas Groteis, and then also uh, *The Handbook of Christian Apologetics* by Tisselli and Kreeft. Uh They're Roman Catholics, of course, so that's a very heavily Thomistic or classical uh, apologetic work. So. That's kind of how I began. I, I started studying online and went through, back then there was a website called Leader U or Leadership U, something like that. I think it was loosely connected with one of the college groups, maybe uh, Campus Crusade for Christ or uh, you know, InterVarsity or something, I don't remember. Or maybe that just was the name of it, Leader, Leader U. But anyway, it had uh, all of William Lane Craig's debates, like the transcripts. There may have been some recordings, I don't remember. And I read through every one of those. So I I really cut my teeth on William Lane Craig and on his debates with atheists. And I was just fascinated by that. Uh, And I I went to his website and everything as well and read a lot of the things that he had out there in different areas. Um, Later on, I was reading uh, Blaise Pascal, and he seemed to me to sound quite a bit different. And the things that he said really resonated with me. Along the same time, about the same time, I was discovering some of the more traditional Reformed thought, uh, historical Christianity, and uh, Protestant thought, and as I was studying that, I kept coming across these people who were saying, you know, apologetics is not all like fair game. There's a specific methodology that supposedly corresponds more closely to scripture and so that's when I discovered Greg Bonson. I think I uh, at first encountered him through the Center for Reform Theology and Apologetics, I think was the name of that website, CRTA. I don't even know if that still exists or if it moved. Uh, fairly staunch, you know, Presbyterian Reformed website from what I remember. But I began reading Bonson. And I did not understand what he was saying. I I had read a little bit of Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, at the same time, uh, but Greg Bonson, of course, pointed me back toward uh, Cornelius Van Til. And again, it took a good little while for the light to really uh, come on for me. But after about a month of just immersing myself in the presuppositional literature wherever I could find it, uh, I wound up—you know—the light bulb came on. And so I was—I was more. Uh, in depth in the literature by then I was I was reading through Van Til uh Van, Van Til Reader by Bonson which I believe is out of print but I'm not positive on that um Massimo Lorenzini had a website at the same time frontlineapologetics.min or something I don't know men.org or something uh, that website probably no longer exists either I don't know Uh, But a lot of the things he had written helped me a great deal as well. I think he was a master's seminary guy, and then maybe a southern guy. I don't remember. Uh, But anyway, so that's kind of how I cut my teeth and got involved in apologetics. I was going online and presenting some of the classical arguments and just getting them torn to shreds. And I thought, this can't be exactly right. And so then I happened upon presuppositionalism, and I've been persuaded by it, not only biblically, but philosophically. and from there on that's what I would fall back on apologetically
0: nice yeah yeah same here it took me I mean I'm probably nowhere close to where some people are with it I'm still figuring it out as I go but I, I think biblically I've been persuaded and I think that's the most important thing and then kind of figuring everything else out as you go along um but yeah that's super encouraging to hear yeah and you're one of the first uh kind of you had like one of the first presuppositional kind of uh was it choosing hats dot uh, org or something like that
1: yeah that's right uh well it's choosing hats probably dot blogspot first and then dot wordpress and then dot com and then dot org <laughs> but, but yeah we uh we we set that up brian knapp and i met and uh in about 2006 i believe it was and i think probably our first post was like july 2006 i believe And uh, we just said, hey, we should, we should start a blog. And that's what we did. And over the years, we grew, we brought more contributors on. And uh, I mean, I I was the main contributor there. I think that everything's up still and archived and whatnot. Um, And our goal was to take presuppositional methodology and explain it to where, you know, virtually anyone could understand it to to try to help people out. And things have have grown and changed a lot uh, even since then. There's so many more resources available now. Uh, so many more presuppositionalists in the academy even, whereas back then not so much.
0: Right. Yeah, I think there's definitely I mean, I'm part of that kind of the the babes of presuppositional apologetics you could say. Uh, you know, like I kind of caught me, maybe a couple of couple of years ago now, but like I, I do remember the shift of seeing a uh, definitely a development of the methodology being more kind of out there uh, with the likes of people like Eli Yala was somebody I kind of s- stumbled across during the COVID time where he was just getting all these top notch guys that I liked a lot on his show and I'm like, how is he getting all these guys like you know uh, like James Anderson and oliphant and all those um good dudes and uh started listening to him a lot listening to what he had to say and and over time it started clicking for me as well so um
1: yeah eli does a really good job i really appreciate the work he's put into everything
0: yeah yeah he's a great guy um if you ever listens what's up eli uh we love you <laughs> But um, yeah, so kind of hopping back, I guess you want to tackle start talking maybe about uh, the topic at hand. Um, You think you're good with that?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. Throw me a topic.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's maybe uh, how maybe we could define like what epistemology is and isn't maybe something like that to start if you want to tackle that. And then we can kind of see where we go from there as far as um, like hermeneutics or just how, how do we interpret outside of, uh, or how do we interpret scripture in light of God's perfect revelation? And how do we have certainty? Like maybe we can talk about how do we know we're getting it right? Or how do we, uh, how do we have certainty regarding um, our interpretation of God's perfect revelation, kind of stuff like that. I was thinking maybe, I know it's kind of like right. ranty, but I hope that makes sense
1: yeah it does it's a lot uh, but we can we can attempt it it's there's nothing else to do uh so <laughs> so epistemology epistemology is i mean the the quick definition is epistemology is the study of knowledge how we can know whether or not we can know um, what sorts of things we can know, and that sort of uh that sort of thing uh it's interesting, you know, when you were asking me earlier about how I got into apologetics, as I recall, when I when I talked about getting into apologetics, one of the things I said was how, you know, how can I know that that I've got the truth here? Why is it that I, I believe I have the truth here with Christianity being a, a believer, whereas all of these other people all around the world and throughout history uh, did not and do not have the truth apart from Christianity. And so really, I think that a significant part of apologetics, if not the whole thing, is the question of how do we know that Christianity is true? Uh, and then you get into other questions, right? Like how do you know that God exists? Well, that's, a, that's an epistemological question, but there are metaphysical questions that get involved in these as well. And then also uh, moral or ethical questions so metaphysical meaning you know what's real what's not real that sort of thing uh, epistemology though is the study of knowledge so apologetics being heavily epistemological means that apologetics are going to or is going to I'm always confused on whether or not apologetics is singular or plural uh, whether or not apologetics uh, is is going to be I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Apologetics are heavily epistemological. So, is is that even the essence of apologetics? In in some sense, yes. All right, now I picked up my train of thought again. Apologetics are, in some sense, going to be based upon the discipline of philosophy. Then, which is something like uh, Alvin Plantinga says, thinking really hard about a topic. So, apologetics are going to be linked to philosophy, but as Christians, as believers we shouldn't view apologetics as merely being connected to the discipline of epistemology as such, or the discipline of philosophy, more broadly conceived, as such. We should understand Christian apologetics as pertaining directly to Christianity. So what do we mean by that? We mean something like uh, a biblical view of all things, right? So a biblical approach to something like philosophy, a biblical approach to metaphysics, to epistemology, to meta-ethical theory. Uh, does the Bible speak to the issues of metaphysics? Absolutely. Uh, we know that, for example, there's more than just physical matter that exists out there. Uh, we know that there are things that exist like angels and demons. We know that there's a spiritual realm. We know that there's a creation around us. We know that creation is under a curse. So even though things work really well, as it were, they're also sort of messed up, actually very messed up in some regards, right? Uh, What about epistemologically? Does the Bible present us with an epistemology? I'd say absolutely absolutely. And i think that on revelationary apologetics on the the youtube channel there with uh, brian knapp and i i think we addressed this on one of the episodes just biblical epistemology what we can know about epistemology or uh what we know how we know ways of knowing that sort of thing what we know about epistemology just from biblical revelation so when we read the bible what is it that the Bible can tell us either explicitly or implicitly about the things that we can and do know and how we come to know them. And so scripture, for example, uh, would show us that this is a world in which we can use our senses to come to knowledge. So if you have an epistemology that rejects all sensory experience, all sensory data, all, all sensory sense-based knowledge, if you have a view that does that, you don't have a biblical epistemology because you've not uh, made room in your epistemology for what the Bible, you know, flatly presents and, and whatnot. Does the Bible say things about ethics? Well, absolutely. <laughs> the Bible is full of, you know, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, uh, and that sort of thing. And so what I would present, and this is how I teach this as well, um, you know, even in my general apologetics courses, I I don't, I'm not super dogmatic about people viewing things exactly the way I do in terms of methodology. Most of the places I've taught uh, are much more broad than a narrow Vantilianism, you know, Cornelius Til being the father of modern presuppositionalism. Uh, However, I do say, look, if we're going to be Christians, we're going to be christian apologist we do need to look at the bible this gives us not only the content that we're defending in our apologetic it gives us also the motive for doing so and so i draw a little a little house or something i don't know what it is it's got a base and that's the bible and based on on the bible is our doctrine and then based on our doctrine is our theology And then based on theology is our philosophy. And then kind of the point at the top of this little pyramid is apologetics. And so I think that's the way that apologetics should run from the Bible all the way out to apologetics and not starting with apologetics, whatever those are, and then trying to get back to the Bible.
0: That's really helpful. Yeah, Do you have anything, uh, Sam, to to comment or add right there?
2: No, yeah, no, I'm just loving it. Okay.
0: (laughs) Just checking. Um, yeah, that's really helpful, Chris. I appreciate you kind of breaking that down for us a bit. And, and, um, so would you say like, so in regards to like, I know we, you, you've kind of mentioned how, like we have our starting point, right? The ultimate starting point is the Bible. Like, how do we know we go there? Um, correct like that's where we go and um how
1: right. as, as christian yeah.
0: so you broke up a little there what was that
1: it's all right go ahead <laughs>
0: oh okay yeah i was just gonna i guess ask the question okay so now we've established that that we have this ultimate authority that we hold to as christians the bible I was wondering maybe if you could comment or talk a little bit about this idea of kind of like a, um, what do you call it, a proximate authority in comparison to the ultimate authority. I know there's that, I don't know if that's a philosophical distinction someone makes. Maybe I heard it from James Anderson um, or some other Vantilian, but, or moderate, whatever you want to call it. But if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, how we have that ultimate starting point and then how we still have to start with ourselves to interpret that and maybe talk a little bit about something of in line with that. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. Um, okay. So I, I do believe that this language appears in Cornelius Van Til of, of uh, proximate and, uh, oh, what's the other? <laughs> Secondary. Uh, did I get those right? Is that how you portrayed those just a moment ago?
0: Um, ultimate and proximate.
1: Ultimate. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. There are different ways to construe this. So, ultimate and proximate starting points of knowledge. So, I like to talk about them in terms of starting points of knowledge versus authority per se. Although I understand uh, why people talk about authority as well. So, when we're talking about an epistemological starting point, we're asking where does our knowledge start from? How how do we begin this process of knowing, as it were? And this is not necessarily a chronological or temporal thing here. Uh, we're talking about logical priority, right? Not a chronological priority or, or whatever that may be or, or temporal. So uh, what's the logical order of, of knowing uh, in terms of a starting point or authority? Uh, and I think it's helpful to talk about ultimate authority versus proximate authority. And I don't think that this is some sort of radical idea either. So we find this sort of language and this sort of scheme in Cornelius Van Til. Uh, to my recollection, Greg Bonson draws it out as well. Um, you can you can also talk about this, although I've, I've forgotten it as I began talking about this in uh, using different terms, using different uh, language like immediate. Starting point and immediate starting point, those sorts of things. Um, one of the criticisms of presuppositionalism comes from R.C. Sproul and is it John Gerstner in their uh, classical apologetics work? And then R.C. Sproul Jr. picked up on this as well and levels this charge against Vantillianism and Vantillian presuppositionalism in particular that all of us have to start uh, with ourselves. I mean, the way that knowing begins is with ourselves because we are finite. We cannot get outside of ourselves. And so we're stuck. And so, Vantillianism in that sense is false. Well, it's not false. It's just that we need to read and understand what Vantill is saying. Vantill is repeating almost exactly what the reformers themselves said when they were speaking of things like uh, the magisterial uh, authority and the ministerial authority. When it comes to, it's interesting that you bring up scripture. Uh, When it comes to scripture in particular and the interpretation of scripture, scripture is our magisterial authority. There is no higher authority than scripture. If you proceed to prove the authority of scripture based upon another authority, it would seem to indicate then implicitly that you're elevating that other authority above the authority of scripture in order to say, ha, see there, the authoritative revelation of God. You've actually undermined your claim by following that process of using whatever that secondary authority is, whether it's human reasoning, experience uh, and what, or what have you. So our reason then, how do we get out of this? Our, our human reasoning, our experience, uh, our senses, these sorts of things Become the proximate starting points of our knowledge. Nobody's denying that we have to think. Nobody's denying that we have beliefs. Nobody is denying that we use our senses. Now, I say nobody, but that's not exactly true. There are scripturalists out there, there are occasionalists out there. Uh, there are, and I'm going to go ahead and just drop this bomb and move on quickly. There are Clarkians out there who, I think, venture off into some of these positions that would uh, lead them into error, uh, but that's a whole different topic for another day. Um, the point is that our ultimate authority is God, and God, when he speaks that's his word, it carries his authority with it, and so although we're not God, we cannot get into a God's eye view, as it were, we also are able to be communicated to by God in our finite uh, standing as a proximate starting point of knowledge, and so we use our human reasoning, we use our senses, etc., to come to the conclusions that we do about scripture and these sorts of things. Nevertheless, we understand uh, scripture based upon its own authority. And, uh, I mean, we could get into that, I guess, if you want, but, uh, that's kind of, does that make sense how I've sort of set that out?
0: Yeah, that's actually super helpful. Um, yeah, I, yeah. And the reason I kind of bring this up, Chris, is just like in my, I guess, sphere of things I've been considering, processing, thinking about has to, has a lot to do with specifically, um, presuppositional apologetics or, or as Oliphant likes to correct me, covenantal apologetics. Um, I am a Presbyterian, so I probably should say it that way. But whatever the case, um, but I've been just thinking a lot about, uh, particularly how presuppositional apologetics relates to the science of interpretation, and and I say that with things in mind of like people like, you know, a lot of postmodern uh, philosophers like Rorty, uh, Derrida um uh who's the other one um and i know some some people have done work on this but uh i don't know if from a presuppositional approach um like i know kevin van hooser has has done some work on that um and who's the other one um da, 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 da. uh i can't think of his name right now but yeah. So, are you,
2: about, are you thinking of the guy who wrote those individual volumes on, like, Derrida, Foucault?
0: Yes, Foucault. That's who I was thinking of. Thank you. Watkins, oh, yeah. I think, wrote on him. Yeah.
2: Watkins. That's the guy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But um, I yeah, I've just been trying to process some of those um, them things specifically um, because they come up often in my own head, um, and then just um, in conversations I've been actually having with some good friends about, you know, when we say, "Oh, the Bible is our authority," and I'm like, "Yes, and Amen." um but we still have to do the hard work of understanding our authority uh, approximately um and we do that through you know means and 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 uh sciences that help us understand the text but then i also see that it can go in a direction that i'm not sure what your thoughts are on it i'd like to hear your thoughts on on just um how specifically in like biblical scholarship you have lots of people using um, sources or background information in their their exegetical approach to scripture. And I think specifically of um are you familiar at all with like um uh the new perspective on Paul and some of those ideas uh where people are kind of taking second temple uh Jewish uh literature and kind of using that as a grid to do their hermeneutics on justification. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yes I, I wrote on new perspective on Paul in undergrad.
0: Oh, great! Uh,
1: but I think, I think, I think these are really good questions. I think that, and you may not like this, uh, I think that starting at thirty thousand feet and then kind of coming into that might be the more helpful approach, at least in terms of how I would begin to address some of those worries with postmodernism uh, and you know deconstructionist readings and that sort of thing
0: yeah and just throwing out tons of terms at you and hope something clicks for you and then you can just go to town so i'll just shut up you know
1: (laughs) i i I, uh no i think i think that you're i think that you're you are putting your finger on something that is a big honestly a big problem right now uh in in evangelicalism uh whatever evangelicalism is (laughs) um you know i'm I'm seeing a lot of this. I I really do believe, so this is difficult, because on the one hand, I do believe that our biggest challenge right now in the church is actually in terms of hermeneutics. And yet, on the other hand, I've even taught hermeneutics, courses on hermeneutics, and I'm still kind of trying to figure out what exactly hermeneutics are, (laughs) (laughs) or what it is (laughs) i know that it's the art science of biblical interpretation and this sort of thing you know conceived in terms of christianity uh but what i'm saying is that hermeneutics is a vast discipline it involves all sorts of different topics right i mean you get into philosophy of language you get into textual criticism i mean all of these things play out in the way that we come to the text the way that we read scripture and this sort of thing. So I want to kind of oversimplify this maybe in the Vantillion uh, sort of way (laughs) that we go about things. By the way, a quick note on the term uh, covenantal apologetics versus presuppositional. I'm all about that, and I was about that for a long time. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily unique to, say, a a Paedo-Baptist perspective, uh, even though, you know, some people may want it to be that way. I don't know that Oliphant even had that in mind per se. Uh, he actually wrote to me one time and, and seemed to think that the term wasn't catching on as we wanted it. Yeah,
0: yeah, we we had him on our uh, show. It's actually
1: very helpful to get away from. Go ahead.
0: Oh, you broke up a little bit. Oh, I was just saying we had a. We had Scott Oliphant on our show, maybe, I don't know, Sam, what was that, two weeks ago, I think, about, and uh, we kept saying pre and stuff, and he'd smile and be like, he's like, you know, you guys can use that term, that's fine, he's like, I just, I I like using covenantal apologetics, (laughs) so it was just funny.
1: I had a dispensational friend who who was so upset this sensationalist friend who got so upset uh by me titling some of my work with that but uh <laughs> i i didn't even take it to you know be particularly tied to cover you know a particular version of covenant theology per se but anyway um so let's let's start out then thirty thousand feet or whatever um so much of our knowing so much of our interpretation of the world around us is actually based, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as being these scientifically minded people and empiricists, which means that we use our five senses to come to knowledge and, and see the world the way it really is, this sort of thing. I, I don't find that overly persuasive. So much of our knowledge and so much of the way we approach everything is based on a testimonial sort of model. So we come to believe things because other people say them. (laughs) That's kind of the long and short of it. And I don't care if you're talking about, you know, the recent mess we've gone through the past year and a half, or if we're talking about the things we learned in elementary school or whatever, uh, the things we learned from our parents. We're receiving many of our beliefs based upon testimony, the testimony of, Of others. And there are lots of different uh, models for understanding um, an epistemology of, of testimony. But I think that it's significant to think about that a little bit more when we come to the text of Scripture itself. So, why do we receive Scripture as an authority? Well, here's the thing we recognize the Bible as the word of god in much the same way analogously that you know when we started this call it wasn't recorded yet Uh, i was explaining that uh, i had a bunch of technical difficulties today so i'm on my phone and the sound quality is not going to be great and you said well you sound like chris bolt right so you've heard my voice before and so you recognize my voice that you know i can call church members i can call former church members from you know i haven't seen or heard from them in years and they'll they'll still know my voice they were they were used to listening to it that sort of thing it's the same way with god we know his voice in the scripture uh and so not only that we have in the bible we have in scripture claims about itself In other words, scripture is self-attesting. That means that it attests to itself. Scripture claims to be the word of God. Does that mean in in a purely secular philosophical sense, does it follow then that it is the word of God? No, that's not the argument I'm making, right? I mean, any kind of crazy person can get up and say, well, I am, you know, I am God, and I'm testifying that my words are God's words. Now, you might not want to do that. Actually, you certainly don't want to do that. But my point is, just because that crazy person says that does not mean that his words are the words of God. With, it, with the Bible, though, it's significant that it does claim to be the word of God because, and a lot of people don't realize this, Almost no other religious or sacred text makes that claim about itself. So right off the bat, the Bible is set apart from other religious texts. Uh, The Bible claims to be the word of God. We would certainly hope to see that if it is the word of God. And then because we, we see that it comes from God, we perceive that it's God's word, an immediate perception. It's God's word. And he's the ultimate authority and and the Bible claims to be the word of God, this actually carries with it then self-authentication. I'm only distinguishing between self-attestation and self-authentication uh, for pragmatic reasons. They really, in terms of scripture itself, are indiscernible if we're Christians and approaching this thing from Christian presuppositions. Now people get upset and they say, Well, that's not fair. You can't just presuppose the entire Christian worldview. And I say, well, I just did. What difference does that make to me? I mean, everybody presupposes something. I'm not saying that other people presuppose things in the same way that I do, because I believe that as Christians, we actually have a coherent worldview uh, that works and that, uh, you know, corresponds to things as they actually are. Um, but it's also the case that I'm not merely making some sort of circular argument. This is a presupposition. If someone makes an assumption or if someone states a belief, it doesn't mean that that person's engaging in some sort of logically fallacious, uh, you know, deductive circular reasoning. Uh, This is simply my presupposition. I receive the Bible as the authoritative inspired word of God. As did the reformers, by the way, we don't come to that belief through the magisterium placed outside of scripture somewhere. We come to that belief through the immediate testimony of the word of God. So we can know scripture in that way. We also know scripture, though, because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't provide us with new content, as it were. The Holy Spirit rather illumines us, uh, helps us to, uh, you know, the spirit bears witness with our spirit. The spirit bears witness and, and testifies to the Bible as the word of God. And so I want to start there because I, I think that that's significant, especially as we move into questions of communication, which goes toward the postmodern objection you mentioned or the postmodern scheme that you mentioned. Uh, but also what I just said uh, um, goes toward, uh, you know, questions of interpretation and, and that sort of thing as well.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. I think that helps. It's good because it it puts the foundational things down where they need to be down, and then you can work off of that in going forward. Because there is, you know, definitely, I wouldn't suggest, and I don't think any presuppositional apologist would suggest that we are saying that we can't know anything with good certainty. Um, and I would think a lot of those things would be these foundational presuppositions that we're starting with the self-attesting, or you mentioned the self authentic I think, uh, often authentication for pragmatic purposes, you mentioned, but like, whatever the case we, that is knowable. And I would say that is, um, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that would be our absolute certainty regarding our view of the scriptures. That's, you know what I mean? Would I be right in saying that would be a ultimate, uh, certain thing. There's fin- foundational things that we've flew over at 30,000 feet.
1: Yeah, so, and, and that's the thing, there's so many claims within Vantilian presuppositionalism or covenantal apologetics, there's so many claims which seem to be uh, almost philosophically naive, and yet deeply profound at the same time, which, which kind of corroborates my, my faith in scripture, and the method that I believe flows out of it, because that's exactly what the gospel is like, the gospel <laughs> is so simple that a child can understand it, and yet, you know, it's deeply profound. I mean, you'll spend a lifetime and more trying to contemplate and understand the depths of the gospel, right, and and the depths of the riches of God, as, you know, Paul goes into famously in Romans. Um, I I was going to mention one other thing, too, and I kind of lost my train of thought, but uh, this is also just laying down what we just did is also the way that we can begin to address things like you were talking about earlier, like the new perspective on Paul, um, because the Bible is a unique book. There is no other word like this. It is redemptive in nature. Uh, it is authoritative. It's God-breathed. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's, uh, it's sufficient. Uh, all of these sorts of things, Things, right it has these characteristics about it it's clear right perspicuous uh it has these characteristics about it that make it completely different than any other work uh, than any other book that sets it apart from those and that gives us uh that implies some things about the way that we should study scripture the way that we should develop theology so for example, with regard to new perspective on Paul, we're going to begin even in a practical sense with scripture to understand the world of scripture and not the background information that we perceive through discipline of history is completely unhelpful or something like that. It's simply that we have to understand which is the ultimate authority, even when it comes to you know, a theological question like how should we understand justification?
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's so important. I mean, even I, I just think about it, I uh, I've recently talked with my pastor about this and and he 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 kind of said the very similar things. Like, yeah, well, we have to start with understanding what justification means in the Old and New Testament, um, and understand the context and how they're communicating it. And then you can look at the back down our background and cultural stuff to see what might be helpful in your exegetical work you're already doing just within the scriptures you know the background helps with possibly picking up some some things that can be helpful but not necessarily as a a way of radically changing definition of words found in the bible you could say or something like that yeah
1: yeah yeah I, you know, for example, so if we're going to, I mean, do, what do we, where, which way do we want to go from here? <laughs>
0: whatever way you think best.
1: Yeah. I don't know how much of the, uh, these specifics I'll be able to address without, you know, having prepared a whole lot for this podcast episode. Well, yeah. Like I mean, that, do, but. yeah.
0: Do whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, I like I mentioned I just threw out a bunch of terms you don't have to deal with all of them <laughs> just whatever you think you you'd like to
1: yeah I, I just I think that they're I think you're onto a lot with um with what you're what you're talking about with hermeneutics um and I'm trying to think of which would be more helpful to to flesh out the new perspective on Paul and I would add with that I just want to throw this in the mix ancient Near Eastern studies and the way that we view the old testament and interpret it as well and kind of the relation between those different things right um, and and then also there's you know the the question of the clarity of scripture and postmodernity deconstructionism and that sort of thing which i'm not going to be able to go into with a great deal of depth but again i do think that uh, a vantillian approach is helpful here with regard to uh, the study of the nature of scripture and its application to apologetics and and something more local like you know the hermeneutic endeavor with regard to these topics uh, and I think that that is the case because I do see Vantillian presuppositionalism or covenantal apologetics as being in line with traditional historic reform thought on these topics and you know those guys were bright <laughs> and there were a lot of them and uh, and they've addressed a lot of these questions already, uh, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. So it's here again, it's helpful to read, um, you know, church history and especially reformed Protestant thought, because if God, here we go with another claim about scripture, if God has said something and it was clear to people back then, and even prior to the reformers, as we know. The reformers were not uh, just going off into the woods and studying the Bible, you know, just me and Jesus and the Bible. That's how you get a cult. That's not how you get reformed Protestant Christianity. Um, You know, they were reading deeply the the church fathers. They were reading Augustine. They were reading, uh, you know, the others. So um, as they're reading them, though, and as we read the Protestant reformers, we can realize, hey, you know god doesn't have to keep saying things over and over again he's communicated clearly back then he communicates clearly now through his word but god has also given us as he's given us the holy spirit god's also given us the church to help us to understand these things on a deeper level right um and so again (laughs) scripture itself the, the things that we've set forth thus far in terms of knowing the Bible as the authoritative Word of God and as our ultimate starting point, those same principles are behind then the particulars of interpret interpretive questions. Right as we move forward,
0: that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think I have anything to mention. I think you're you're on a good trail here. Um, unless Sam, did you have something you wanted to say?
2: I have something, but it would be a whole
1: different rabbit hole. So I think <laughs> yeah. we
2: we'll more on.
1: <laughs> maybe Th- throw- if you want to throw it out there, I mean, because we've got, we've got a lot of, so it's like spaghetti, right? we throw thrown <laughs> yeah. it on the plate and it's gross. And I haven't, I haven't tried to go through the specifics yet. So if you want to throw it out there, maybe it'll tie into the other one.
2: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so disclaimer, I promise this isn't a gotcha question. It might sound like one. But it's a genuine um, thing. I'm wondering, how do you square um, scripture being self-attesting and self-authenticating? How do you square that with like problem passages in the sense of whether we're talking like macro, like the canon, or micro, like the the woman caught in adultery, or just textual issues in general? Um, how does that play into those kind of issues?
1: Yeah. So. I would say that those issues, that's a very good question. Uh, and this is something, by the way, that Greg Bonson wrote on a great deal. Uh, if I remember correctly, he wrote the chapter on canon for Norm Geisler's book on um, on scriptural authority. and everything. I forget the title of that book. I think it's called Biblical Inerrancy. You know, in those days, uh, what, 60s, 70s, 80s, Um, You know, Presbyterians were dealing with their own forms of liberalism and had dealt with them in the past as well. And of course, uh, in Baptist circles, you're seeing, for example, the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention. That was, what, 1979 that that began. So you see a lot of these guys uh, meeting together and working on these projects, R.C. Sproul and uh, Greg Bonson, I mean, writing a chapter for Norm Geisler, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that's just something that kind of boggles our minds now. But uh, there was a common enemy there, as it were. And there was a, a common faith as well with which that enemy needed to be answered. Uh, and so Bonson has written a, a bit and, and spoken on the issue of canon. And then also the issue of things like I mean, you just brought it up, and this is part of hermeneutics, right? I mentioned that earlier textual criticism. So the pericope adultery and uh, John uh, is that eight and then uh, seven or eight. And then, uh, you know, the, the different endings of Mark, uh, long ending versus short ending, that sort of thing. The Coma Johannium of First John uh, 5, 7, which I've written on a little bit. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. So I would say that um, the textual critical issues we'll set aside for the moment, because I view those as distinctly different from issues of canon per se. Uh, With canon, I would point the listeners to the work of Mike Kruger. He delivered one of the most amazing lectures I've ever heard uh, in San Diego uh, on the canon of scripture and the language that's used uh, in scripture to refer to like Old Testament and the developing uh, New Testament canon at the time. Uh, I do think it's helpful to understand canon in terms of what God speaks. So like whatever I write is my canon, like that's the canon of my work. Nothing changes that or whatever, regardless of whether or not people recognize what I've written as mine or not, uh, that is the canon of my work. Now then there's the question of how do you recognize that canon, which is an epistemological question. And I think that does take us back in the main to the way that I would have answered it before with the self-attestation and then also the self-authentication. And then we have other corroborating factors as well that we would appeal to in terms of the ministerial use of things like our human reasoning, right, and history and experience. And, uh, you know, there are arguments as to uh, the apostles or their their close friends and, you know, this sort of thing as to uh, whether or not a book should be in there and that sort of thing. What I want to be careful about is, is not to leave people thinking that we have to have, uh, you know, a formal table of contents as another uh, aspect of the canon. We don't because, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we recognize the word of God. Some of these issues, uh, disagreements over canon and that sort of thing, are not, uh, without going too far down into historical arguments, they're not as, uh, as clear or uh, they don't go the way that we're often told they do anyway. So uh, Martin Luther, you know, talking about James, the right epistle of straw and that sort of thing. I would point the listeners to some articles written by uh, James Swan that appear on the old Alpha and Omega Ministries website of James R. White. Uh, again, that's James Swan. And he's written about that issue uh, at length. Luther was not uh, like opposed to James in the way that's uh, often thrown out there. That sort of thing. Um, you know, you don't have people presenting some of these spurious um, books or whatever, the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha and all that. You don't have people presenting these as having some sort of shared authority with Scripture. Uh, again, this gets into a lot of historical claims. I'm going to write some blank checks here that I can't cash, uh, but. Uh, but there it is, if you want to, if you want to start down that path in that way. When it comes, though, to, you know, the absolute edges of canonicity, when it comes to issues of textual criticism, uh, the argument simply goes to something like this. Yes, we admit that this is an issue, this is a little bit fuzzy, that when you get down to, you know, particular text or particular, really, in some cases, pen strokes. Of Scripture, uh, we cannot have the same level of certainty regarding those sorts of things, if if that's such a thing as levels of certainty. Uh, we cannot have the same level of certainty with regard to those very particular issues that we do with regard to you know the message of Scripture as a whole, uh, you know, entire books, uh, and this sort of thing. And so, though this is fuzzy around the edges, and we can admit that we nevertheless would still say that apart from this foundation of God's word, uh, of being able to recognize the God who is there and who speaks, apart from that, we're not even able to carry out the more difficult questions of not only textual critical concerns, but of you know particular interpretation of difficult uh, texts and that sort of thing as well. So in other words, if we admit to some sort of certainty, that's what I wanted to get to in a moment, Uh, if we admit to some sort of certainty with regard to recognizing the word of God and saying this is the word of God, uh, that does not preclude difficulty with regard to, you know, knowing little bitty particulars uh, in other places. Of course, you know, there there are the stock answers with regard to textual criticism and and textual critical concerns that these differences, I mean, we just named the most famous three of them, right? The Coma, Johannium, the Pericope, Adultery, and the ending of Mark. Um, These things do not change the overall meaning of scripture uh, one way or the other. They seem to be very consistent with scripture if they belong there. And uh, and if they don't, we haven't lost something uh, that we need. Yeah, thank you. Was
2: really
0: you you're lagging hard, Sam. OK. So we just got done talking about um, the, uh, the hermeneutics and the textual criticism stuff. Um, but yeah, you, you're just mentioning how we have good grounds to, be- it's not like we're losing something or something's uh, upfront and suspicious of the overall, uh, uh, you could say canon or whatever the case.
1: Yeah, I, I don't want to make it sound as though uh, there's some people who seem to think that once we admit that we have some sort of certainty with regard to basic foundational Christian claims, that therefore we're certain about every single thing we believe or something to that effect. I think that's deeply problematic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's not what we're saying. And so that's true of textual critical concerns. That's true of particular interpretations of various you know passages of scripture and that sort of thing. Um, but again, at, this does come back to issues of communication and the God we're talking about. God is light, scripture says, like God is the one who reveals himself. He is self-revealing. And by the way, that's in terms of creation itself uh, as much as it is with scripture. Now, we don't put those on absolute par with one another Because we do view creation, we view the book of nature through this book of scripture, the special revelation of God, right? So even though creation itself uh, shares many of the same attributes as scripture, because they are revelation from the same God, uh, nevertheless, we see clearly through the word of God. Now, even the... Uh, passages of scripture that are less clear to us that do take a great deal of work to understand on a deeper level even in those passages god intends to communicate something to us right i mean we have this personal god who's created us in his image and we are personal beings as well personal agents we have the ability to communicate and even to communicate clearly at times why would we try to preclude god from being able to do likewise he is after all omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent certainly god if this god exists and is the god we say he is or that scripture says he is certainly he can communicate certainly he can get through and of course we want to affirm that that god can get through Uh, When it comes to the issue of certainty, real quick, um, you know there are different types of certainty. There's epistemic certainty. There's rational certainty. There's Cartesian certainty. There's mathematical certainty. Uh, You know some of these are colloquial terms. Sometimes they're philosophical terms. Uh, There's maximal epistemic warrant. uh, You know there's psychological certainty. A lot of times when people speak of certainty, they probably mean psychological certainty even though they think they mean something like rational certainty or Cartesian certainty, I would uh, warn the listeners against adopting uh, a framework and an understanding of certainty that comes from somewhere outside of scripture as though it is what scripture would portray. So Rene Descartes did a number on our thinking. I mean, Rene Descartes really impacted the future of philosophy from his time forth uh probably in a negative way you know uh where he's coming up with these things i I just need to find something that cannot be rationally doubted well have fun with that especially when you're beginning with yourself as the ultimate authority as descartes does rather than beginning with god with god's revelation to us his authoritative word uh so If we begin with God's revelation to us, if we begin with God's authoritative word, we would then derive whatever we mean by certainty from scripture itself in terms of scripture. And I would add that I don't believe there's any apologetic argument that's going to provide us with something like, the certainty that a lot of these skeptics and a lot of these proponents of something like Cartesian uh, certainty, uh, it's not going to provide us with what they would want with with their standards and that sort of thing. We're not using secular philosophical standards. We're using the standards of the word of God. So in scripture, we're told that we can know with surety, we can know assuredly, we can know certain with certainty or, or certainly that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, that's interesting because typically philosophers look at rationalistic claims and mathematical claims and this sort of thing. And they say, if there's such a thing as certainty, it's going to occur over here in a priori reasoning, uh, reasoning that's apart from empirical experience, you know, experience of the uh, physical world, the contingent realm, this sort of thing. Well, there we have a claim. I mean, this is the very basis of our Christian faith, is it not? that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's an empirical sort of claim. That's a tangible sort of thing, right? We believe in God taking on flesh, human flesh, and living in history and dying on the cross for our sins and being raised again from the dead and then appearing to the disciples. That, those are all empirical type claims that could have been tested at the time and that are then given to us by way of not only human testimony then, but divine testimony, right, as these claims appear in the very word of God. Nevertheless, we have certainty about these claims because they come from God who knows all things. He is God, and so God has certainty. He can give us a basis then for all of our other beliefs. It's not as though God is uh, you know, pouring these uh, beliefs into our minds in some immediate sense where we thereby have certainty about everything we think or whatever, it's that we have uh, a basis for the things that we can come to believe. We have a basis for our meta metaphysics, our epistemology, and our, our ethics.
0: Yeah, it's really helpful, and I'm glad you kind of talked and brought out what you did, because um, a while back, I remember reading, I, and I got super confused by this, because it was the first time I've seen distinctions made within the realm of epistemology, because I'm not a philosopher, and I don't really understand a lot of it, but i um, working on that. But anywho, it was it was James Ann Anderson, and he had this one on his Prognostico blog, and I actually saw you comment on it. It was years and years and years ago. But um, he talked about um, uh, the transcendental argument and how can we know and how do we show? And he made that distinction between showing uh, Christianity to be true is uh, there's a distinction with that in regards to, uh, so there's showing it and then there's knowing it. And he kind of, I think he uses the grid of saying, you know it by the testimony of the Holy Spirit and how you show it. Um, doesn't provide the same psychological certainty. Like you can formulate it into a, a syllogism or something like that. Do you Do you recall what I'm talking about there?
1: I recall that he wrote on whether or not tag or the transcendental argument for God can provide epistemic certainty. And I think I agree with him in that post because I think that the certainty we have is a type of dependent certainty. Uh, it It depends upon god and his revelation so we're not we're not defending tag you know per se as some sort of route to certainty we're we're actually saying christianity like this 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 worldview or or divine revelation that's what gives us certainty and then here's an argument for that transcendental argument uh which by the way does pertain to things like even logical possibility which gets you really really close (laughs) to certainty if you're not there um but uh, I don't recall him talking about that distinction between knowing and showing, although I'm familiar with it. Uh, William Lane Craig talks about this quite a bit. I, I have some fairly significant objections to that uh, distinction, but since I don't recall what Dr. Anderson said there, I, I'm not ready to respond to his particular take on it. Um, I, I would just warn us that what we believe in a subjective sense Um, is what should come out in an objective sense in terms of our apologetic argumentation itself. You know, otherwise we do wind up with some sort of like Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints thing, right? Like this Mm -hmm. Mormon apology where we're saying, Oh, but I have a burning in my bosom, you see, that's how I know. Whether or not I can show you is a different story. I I have problems with that, setting aside issues of proof versus persuasion and that sort of thing.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah. It might've been him. Yeah. It, it might've been a di- I, Yeah. Maybe I was just trying to, um, not, I didn't mean to confuse you with that. I, I was, I think I was just drawing that those distinctions that are made, as you mentioned with, um, uh, how epistemology is certainty is kind of talked about. Um, and that was just a particular thing I read a while ago and I think he was talking about tags. So that could just be a completely another spaghetti thing that we don't need to get into, but, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, so, um, I, I might, have. I think you're getting onto something I might, have. um, do you recall what we, where we were after that? Uh, <laughs>
1: um, I think that the issues of perspicuity and the clarity of scripture uh. and the fact that God, you know, if God intends to communicate, he's going to communicate. I think this is where, the, uh, this is how we answer the postmodernists. This is how we answer the deconstructionists and this sort of thing. I mean, you know, in reality, those people have a point and, and here's what it is. I, I distinctly recall standing in the, in the college parking lot with a friend um, who is not at all a believer and uh he was very philosophically minded very bright guy and he said you know i don't actually think that people can communicate given their world views their distinct worldviews. i don't believe that people actually can or are communicating with one another well i mean that's a problem when you want to communicate that very thing to someone else, right? I mean, this seems very juvenile, almost. This approach, this this is very much like, you know, uh, oh well, uh, there's no such thing as objective truth. And you're like, oh well, is that an objective truth? You know, that sort of uh, quick self refutation or or self defeating claim or whatever. Uh, which, by the way, just the nature of self defeating statements in and of itself is a whole uh, a whole realm of philosophy. But um, you know, what we need to do as presuppositionalists is actually grant that claim. If God does not exist, we cannot communicate with one another. I mean, the, the very fact that we can communicate with one another presupposes that God who who speaks is there. Uh, that is the tr- transcendental argument with regard to language and with com- with regard to communication and that sort of thing. It doesn't mean that all of our communications or that, uh, you know, that all of our communications are clear or equally clear and that sort of thing. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith is very clear regarding the issue of uh, perspicuity. But even those texts that some people throw out in an effort to undermine this doctrine of God being able to communicate to us uh, the things necessary for salvation, they often misunderstand or misapply those texts. So like when the apostle Peter's writing and he says, hey, you know, uh, Paul's got these letters and in them are some things difficult to understand, which, uh, you know, warped uh, ungodly men twist to their own destruction. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, The apostle Peter is not saying that they're impossible to understand. He's saying they're difficult to understand. It's gonna take you some work. It's gonna take you the Holy Spirit It's going to take you uh, what the church has given us to more fully or even to understand these things, uh, you know, even on the surface. But that doesn't mean they can't be understood. It, It means that they actually can be understood. And then Peter even tells us in that that there is a right answer to these things because he says what they twist them to their own destruction so there's an improper way of understanding those texts or applying those texts or seeing those texts in light of other texts you know there are places in scripture where where God intentionally keeps the meaning of something from the people I mean this is repeated throughout the ministry of Jesus right uh with the the blindness uh and and the deafness that's that's given these people as it were Based on the prophecies of Isaiah and everything. Uh, The book of Acts ends this way as well. I just finished teaching through Acts. Um, But what's behind that is that when God intends to get through, he does, right? And so we want to say, yeah, God intends to get through, he does in terms of those things which are necessary to salvation, in terms of the gospel itself. But here's the thing about the gospel the gospel. Though we might be fairly reductionistic in the way we try to define it, let's say, it nevertheless presupposes and implies any number of other beliefs about the world, about God, about us, I mean, about history, right? There are so many things that are tied up in even this, this little bitty uh, core of truth here in the gospel is not a little bitty, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, even if we try to reduce everything down to matters of salvation and the gospel, qua the gospel, uh, we still wind up with a whole lot of things that God uh, can clearly communicate to us, and then that we can clearly communicate uh, to one another uh, on that basis.
0: Yeah, super helpful. And even hearing you talk, I'm like, you know, this is interesting because. The Christian worldview can actually provide a context to understand this, this struggle that we do have for language to be properly understood, correct? Like after the fall, um, it creates uh, it, and it twists our ability by the noetic, noetic effects of sin, you could say. It, it distorts our ability to understand each other correctly or precisely, you could say. Um, or perfectly, in the same way um, it would account for our, our, um, our abilities to um, hear God clearly, but yet in the, the details of it, it, it takes work and effort, and there can be uh, misunderstanding, or sin in the way, or pride, or there's all kinds of different sorts of reasons why we might not be interpreting things correctly, and I think the Christian worldview even provides a basis because of sin's effect through the fall on us and our, our, you know, capabilities to even use sense perception and our rationality uh, the right way. Um, I think, do you get what I'm saying? Do I have a point there, maybe?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, it, when, when people come into presuppositionalism, one of the first things they do is they grab that 1985 debate between Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein. Uh, Greg Bonson being a Christian and Gordon Stein being the atheist in that exchange. And when they hear Bonson debate, what they hear is something like an argument from logic to God. That's not what Bonson's doing there, even though I would argue it it doesn't come across uh, in the way that it necessarily needed to. Um, That debate is very, it doesn't have much Trinitarian content, right? Uh, He focuses on logic and it's a fairly highfalutin philosophical uh, presentation of that sort of argument, Bonson almost comes across Thomistic in that debate. And I say that and the the purists and whatnot get really upset with me, but I I just, I think that's the case if you go and you listen to it. And he also brings up induction, he does bring up morality. So that kind of gives us the big three, right? So Vantillians starting out, they go, aha, without God, you don't have logic, you don't have science, you don't have morality. I call those the big three. But here's the thing, the, the issues with logic, with science, with morality, apart from a Christian worldview, uh, are there as those different areas relate to the issue of the one and the many, of, of bringing unity and plurality uh, into relation with one another. Um, they also are intricately tied to one another, like issues with logic, issues with induction, uh, with morality, and so on and so forth. Now, language is the same way. You you could throw out language as another example uh, of an argument. I mean, with the Christian worldview, we have language. We've talked about that a little bit on this episode. Uh, without the Christian worldview, we don't. And so, all you do here, you know, it's not like we're, we're approaching Um, the, the postmodernist, the deconstructionist, you mentioned what Rorty and, and Foucault and, uh, you know, you know, there's Derrida and and these guys, you don't approach these guys and say, oh, oh, we just, we need to tack some extra things onto their view to try to fix their view of language. No, no, push them further, (laughs) right? (laughs) Say, say, look, what you're saying here, you can't even utter it. Right, I, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> right, this sort of thing. Keep pushing it further because we don't want to. Um, they're doing the work for us of demonstrating that when you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, you profess yourself to be wise and you actually become a fool. And that's absolutely true of communication and language and these sorts of things as well. And you can say that in a very um, you know, high school way, like I just did, or you can go into the depths of that philosophically and and ferret all of that out, which I'm not equipped to do. Uh, I think that Vern Poitras maybe goes into this a little bit uh, in his book on the word. Uh, I can't remember the exact title right now, but his his books, if the listeners are not aware, are available for free at, uh, I think it's frame poethrusorg or maybe it's the other way around. Uh, but he puts his books in PDF format online for free. And there's one that he has on the word, and I believe he goes into this a little bit. I'm trying to think of who else does. Uh, Bonson does to some extent, maybe even in a debate with Edward Tavash, I cannot remember, um, but he, he speaks about language being dependent upon induction, Uh, There are different views of language, too, and how human beings come to learn uh, language. And so uh, based upon how, you know, where you, you fall in that discussion will depend upon whether or not you're going to problems with deductive logic or whether you're going to problems with induction within an anti correct the problem of induction that plagues your view of induction in a non-Christian worldview, or if you've got problems with deduction and how uh, logic is justified, whatever that means, or, or how logic comports with your worldview in a non-Christian worldview, you know, insofar as logic or induction pertain to issues of communication and language, you've got a problem with language as well, right? So there's so many different angles that you can approach this from, but the long and short of it is, you know, we are going to set forth the sufficiency of the Christian worldview based upon divine authoritative revelation of God and then we're going to show you the utter folly of what happens when you reject that worldview. You get all of these problems that other people have raised, such as the postmodernist and, uh, and on down the line, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Sam, did you have anything to add?
2: No, that was great.
0: Yeah, yeah no, that's super helpful, uh, Chris. I think like, I don't know why that just now clicked for me, but uh, you talking through this and me thinking through what you're saying, I'm like, ah, um, actually, I, you know, where I used to be kind of like, you know, obviously I, I, I know I'm a Christian, so I'm not like, yeah, Derrida and these guys are, I, I think they have a point, but what I was missing in my thinking through that was, well, yeah, they have a point that's actually against themselves and they're pointing out a problem that actually the Christian worldview does have answers for (laughs) where language can be understood and where you can have interpretation of communication and have it be meaningful. And you can actually understand the world you live in yourself and the God you live for.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot there. And again, as long as we're starting with scripture and i again i'm i'm writing a lot of blank checks here and i'm talking about things from a very very um general right uh Uh. place Uh, but you can as you develop i mean you know i wrote a book on on the problem of induction and the laws of nature and guess what there's a whole lot more to be said and done even on that topic but i i wrote an entire book on it right but there's there's tons left to do but you can summarize what i said in that book by saying hey you know uh if you reject god then you don't have a reason to expect that the future resembles the past right i mean there, there's a sentence that encapsulates all the things that are said in that book so you can say these things in a very colloquial way on on just a, you know in layman's terms uh or you know, you can go in and dig in and do the work. And I would propose, by the way, that when you look at uh, historic Reformed Christian thought, when you look at hermeneutics, when you look at uh, even Christian philosophy, when you look at apologetics, when you look at the different disciplines within theology, within understanding scripture, within the Christian worldview, and this sort of thing, within Christian education, what you often get, are a lot of like subconscious presuppositionalists because how else are you going to do this if if you're dealing with the content I mean unless a pastor is a false shepherd when he's in that pulpit he's a presuppositionalist right so you know it doesn't matter what you come across that that's how it's done unless you are simply a theological liberal neo-orthodox an atheist Uh, and so on and so forth if you're going to do theology as a christian you are doing theology as a presuppositionalist because you're using god's word as such Uh, and then these things fall out from it again places where we need to be careful then are are places like ancient near eastern um, literature and views and this sort of thing what do we do with something like that how does that impact our understanding of the Old Testament? Well, I would say, again, we need to start with what scripture says about itself. We need to understand scripture in terms of of its being progressive revelation, not, you know, meaning uh, politically liberal or something. I mean, progressive in terms of it it unfolds uh, as it moves along, right? So, um, you know, you have uh, a, a basis for beliefs about creation that reappear later throughout scripture. And we need to ask, well, where did those authors later on get these ideas that they have about creation? Well, they got it from Genesis and they're understanding Genesis as it was given to them, but in a deeper way, right? They're they're revisiting it and it's a hermeneutical spiral, as it were. We're getting deeper and deeper. We're getting more uh, stuff progressively revealed um, and so that is how we would you know just a bare bones approach uh, how we would begin to answer you know say somebody proposes a different view of genesis and the creation account based upon ancient near eastern creation accounts well there there have been people who have done that right and there have been people who have responded to that uh, and you know but once we start with scripture and show okay we can we can begin to show from scripture how this lines up and by the way when we go outside of scripture now we can begin poking holes in that there's not a monolithic ancient near eastern approach to much of anything and this is just a, a very common thing that that people seem to overlook the same thing when we get over into the new testament and the new perspective on paul i like what you said earlier about uh, I think you were mentioning your pastor. I don't know if you were recording or not at that time. Uh, going back and talking about, we need to look at justification even in terms of Old Testament and that sort of thing. When I wrote on New Perspective on Paul, I don't remember all of the answers I gave. There was a specific one uh, from Romans uh, with regard to the wage. I think it was um, and and justification there working that sort of thing, which would show you then kind of the, uh, the symmetry then when it comes to the issue of justification and transfer language, and all that. Uh, but we, we have a, a consistent view of justification, forensic justification throughout scripture, I would argue on the basis of scripture. But then when we look outside of scripture, okay, let's look at Palestinian Judaism, you know, or second temple, uh, Judaism, uh, let's look at this, uh, Covenantal gnomism thing that E.B. Sanders comes out with, or you know what James D.G. Dunn, uh, D.G. Dunn, the right, uh, says about Galatians and works of the law. Or let's look at N.T. Wright and what he has to say. And uh, you know it's interesting even when you get to their conclusions. It's like uh, you know one of them will just make a mess, and another one comes to the conclusion that Paul must have been wrong or something. Is it's like uh, is is this really a reasonable conclusion? Um, versus, you know, take the Constitution of the United States, and I don't mean to get political here or something like this, but say we're, you know, 500, 1,000 years in the future, and they pull out the Constitution of the United States, and they say, aha, here's what these people believed in the United States of America, and here's how they live. It's like, okay, is that really true, (laughs) or was that just the paper document? Uh, Since you're Presbyterian, I'll use Baptist churches as an example. (laughs) Pull out those Baptist bylaws, Uh, I can assure you many, if not most, Baptist churches don't follow their own bylaws. And so it would be wrong for a historian many years from now to look at those and just assume that that's how it played out in actual practice. So when you come across something like supposed covenantal gnomism, uh, you know, you have to ask questions like, okay, sure, there were these things that were being said. But was this how it was actually played out? I mean, we see that even in terms of scripture itself, that though the law is given, you know, though these uh, punishments are prescribed and all these sorts of things, that's not always how it went. In fact, the prophets stand to testify that Israel has failed miserably with regard to the law and justice in their society and this sort of thing. So so again, you can poke holes uh, in those things that are outside of the Christian worldview that is strictly derived from uh, scripture. That's not to say that those things don't influence the way that we understand scripture. They do, um, but we can't just, you know, give away the farm and just assume that because someone says, oh, well, you could be wrong, or oh, let's look at these outside sources. We can't just assume that everything that they're saying is correct. Uh if God's going to get through, if God wants to get through, he's going to get through. And so we have a more sure word in the word of God, which has all of those attributes we mentioned earlier, uh, than we do in any human discipline that falls outside of that.
0: Yeah, that's so, so good, Chris. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head on that. Like, because that's exactly like, I. it's just funny because, you know, you have E.P. Sanders, he comes out with... Paul and uh, Palestinian Judaism, I think is something I'm paraphrasing, but that book. And then you have, you know, later you have, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Paul and the Gift by John Barclay, I believe, uh, where it, it seems like the favor goes back into traditional understandings um, of, of covenant understandings. And it's just like, even the interpretation of, of the historical evidence is always going to be not as, uh, as Van Til would say, it's not like this brute fact, like, you know what I mean? Like you're dealing with uh, history and you're trying to best understand it. But as you mentioned with the constitution, thinks a great, <laughs> a great way to um, properly see that um, as, as a good analogy of being like, okay, you know, you look at the constitution 500 years later and you're like, yeah, this is what the people lived and did. And it's like, yeah, like you just mentioned in America, that's very, that's not the case, right? And you're going to, you could find all kinds of documents that are going to say all kinds of different things. Does that somehow give you the right to be like, oh, this is just the fact of the matter? Um, I would say no, uh, right? And you can't go wrong with uh, the more sure word, as you just mentioned, which is the scriptures.
1: Well, and here again, you don't have a monolith like I said, you don't have that with the A&E text, you don't have it with some of the things that Sanders points out either, as Thomas Schreiner has demonstrated, looking at some of the the Jewish literature, you know, he said, aha, here's a counter example, here's another counter example, and so you don't have some monolithic, uh, you know, belief system or structure, even on paper, Much less the way that people practically lived, right? And so, Mm -hmm. again, where where do we have a monolith? Well, everything Genesis to Revelation points to Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, yeah. In a sense, you could say that's sticking with the primary sources, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's super interesting because, yeah, I'm sure you're aware of like uh, Peter ends and his kind of uh, falling into. Some hyper uh, skepticism regarding, you know, I mean, I, 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 do you know who Peter Enz is?
1: Yeah, I, I loosely followed all of that when it went down.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, just like for him, like him, for example, is just a good, you know, it starts off small, and then next thing you know, the guy is just like it. It seems. He wants to affirm the resurrection, but he doesn't want to affirm inspiration or inerrancy. I, I Maybe I shouldn't say inspiration, but inerrancy, at least I could say for sure, uh, which is interesting because in a five views book on that, uh, I think it's uh, Kevin Van Hooser, it says something along the lines in his critique of saying, well, how do you know that the resurrection is reliable and not uh, these other verses that you, you want to deny. It's a good question to ask because it's like how do you verify uh one from the other um as as kind of like how do you make that judgment by you know like <laughs> you know the classic uh by what standard question but it's kind of a good good question to ask there you know.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's Graham Goldsworthy who outlines this in oh, one of his books is it gospel-centered hermeneutics or something um he quotes from someone and i don't recall who right now but i want to go back and revisit that and i don't remember this exactly but it's something to this effect you've got the authority of scripture and then you've got you know the book of nature Uh, now we can include i know there's debate about this but but we can include other extra biblical sources whether that be history you know in the case of sanders or, or whatever um Okay, so we start with scripture, kind of as the authority—not kind of, but scripture as the authority—and <laughs> then these other things is sort of help, helping out, right? Corroborating the things that we find in scripture. You know, I mean, it's not like these things are unhelpful, right? I mean, it's not like we're we're trying to say, oh no, no, uh, all these things that E.P. Sanders says, uh, we're just going to ignore those. That's not what we're saying. Um, but but we do understand them in light of scripture and our hermeneutic and our theology and that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway eventually what happens is people then start treating uh, the book of nature as having parity with scripture. Uh, So they're on par with one another, but as soon as you do that, you're already in the position to where now you're interpreting scripture based upon the greater authority, as it were, of those things you derive or think you derive from the book of nature right from general revelation from uh you know even from common grace and so now the the book (laughs) the book scripture divine special revelation becomes subject to these other interpretive uh frameworks and whatnot um You're not so much seeing right now, at least what I've seen, you're not seeing people come out and explicitly deny something like inerrancy, right? Uh, The idea, so let's differentiate here. Um, These can be used different ways. Uh, So by infallible, I mean that scripture cannot err because it is the word of God and he does not, he doesn't mess up. Uh, By inerrant, I mean that scripture actually does not have error in it, Uh, and that that follows from infallibility, that follows from the nature of God and these sorts of things, in fact, this is word. So, and again, there are lots of different ways to get to those and things that need to be said about those, but we're not gonna say them right now. Um, But uh, what I'm seeing is not so much just, you know, an outright denial of inerrancy, uh, even through, you know, relying heavily upon historical sources and, and the book of nature and this sort of thing, Um, What I what I'm seeing is people saying things like this. Well, scripture is inerrant, but our interpretation of scripture is not inerrant. Okay, let's 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 deal with that. So right off the bat, I think that's a category error, because when we're talking about inerrancy uh, and we're talking about it in a theological sense, we're talking about that with regard to the nature of scripture scripture is inerrant that means it doesn't contain any you know errors inaccuracies etc whether scientific historical whatever and what have you um but if we're just saying that inerrancy the inerrancy of scripture if we're using inerrant in a broad sense a philosophical sense a, a definitive sense we simply mean that it doesn't have error well can we interpret scripture such that we are not in error? Absolutely. And so it really, you know, creeps people out. (laughs) But uh, is there such a thing as an inerrant interpretation of scripture? That is, is there such a thing as an interpretation of scripture that does not admit of some error? The answer is yes. Now, we're still tainted with sin. I understand that. I'm not claiming Uh, cartesian certainty with you know with regard to a particular interpretation of scripture on some specific topic or something i'm not saying any of that i i understand those dangers i'm simply saying yes we can interpret scripture and actually know what it says and not be in error in those doesn't mean we're always without error i'm just saying that there are definitely interpretations of scripture where we would say we don't have any error here so jesus christ is the son of god i think that's a proper interpretation of what scripture teaches i don't believe i'm in error when i say that jesus christ is the son of god right and so if you want to use inerrant in that way which is already a category error as i've already pointed out But if you wanna use it that way, then we need to go ahead and bite the bullet and say, no, actually there are inerrant interpretations of scripture, but understand what's behind all of this is an apparent epistemic humility that's actually epistemic arrogance. Because if God intends to communicate to us through his inerrant word, then certainly he would have it be the case that we can understand his inerrant word Without error, we get the message, right um, so so that that's worrisome to me that it's troubling because there's a conflation between something like certainty or assurance uh, or confidence in scriptural interpretation. There's a conflation of that with uh, you know arrogance or something, so that people are pushing humility it's actually false humility um. You know instead of certainty with regard to the word of god that does not mean that we can simply say well the bible is the word of god therefore my particular little interpretation here is the correct one you still have to do the work you still have to show your work but yes we can understand what scripture says
0: yeah that's excellent that yeah, this has been super good, Chris, like super personally helpful. And I know it will be helpful for a lot of people as well. Um, this has been a conversation I've been getting in a lot with people um, because it, it's, it's, uh, I've always, struggled. it's like, it, it's just like, it's not, it, it's always seems hard for me to understand how we can just be like, oh, well uh, like this isn't an issue in, in. Uh, the science of interpretation. And uh, I mean, you see it all over the place. And maybe it's just me because I care about what all these scholars are talking about and thinking about. And maybe I just get the get get more aware of these things than maybe others that aren't uh, silly as me and nerd out about that. But (laughs) but um, just seeing the vast different uh, takes on things. And I've actually now you bringing that up, actually kind of like I, I've heard that a lot and I haven't really picked up on it, but it, it, it almost is a, like a false humility when you're kind of like, well, yeah, of course the Bible is an errand, but like we can't understand it as such. Like we can't have uh, this certainty regarding if we're actually right in it or not. And I mean, once you open that door, you're, you're allowing that kind of skepticism and uncertainty in your, your in your interpretation. Then, I mean, just think that, you know, that just leads to huge implications down the road and i think you actually see hints of that especially with um all the stuff going on with um you know a lot of the lgbtq plus or the all these different questions that are up for debate right now that shouldn't really be up for debate debate to begin with but it starts with these ideas of of kind of like what you just mentioned like well we just maybe we need to revisit these things maybe we're not understanding them correctly maybe we gotta redo our interpretation um you know and, and it's just like to have confidence in our take on something is almost like illegal in uh in our studies nowadays
1: that's right that's right yeah
0: so, yeah, Chris, uh, we've been going for a bit. I don't want to hold you up any longer. Uh, I'm sure you have a wonderful, uh, you're married, right? I am. Okay. I'm sure you have a wonderful wife and children, uh, possibly. Uh, so That's I wonderful. would hate the, what's that?
1: I've got four of those. Yeah.
0: Four. Oh, man. Nice. Our one uh, other host has four girls. So, uh, wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, he's a softie. Actually, he's not. He's a pretty tough, dude. So
1: he's um, gonna have to be.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's what he always says. He's raising them tough. Uh, so, but um, in a in a good tough way, of course. Listeners, don't take that. Uh, who knows how people hear things nowadays? But um,
1: we're very we're very professional and compassionate people.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but um i don't know if you had any uh uh, sam if you had any concluding uh questions or thoughts before we let chris peace out or if chris has anything you'd like to say as well
2: no i just wanted to thank you for your time man this has been really informative and interesting so just thanks for talking with us
1: yeah i appreciate you guys having me on it was uh it was good it was a good little little exercise to got to think through some of these things just on the surface anyway
0: yeah no i I think it's super helpful um i don't think you give yourself enough credit for how helpful that was honestly that was really really good um and then you know as far as cashing them checks i mean we don't need to it's all good we believe you man and we'll just (laughs) take the blank ones yeah don't
1: trust me Trust the word of god
0: (laughs) yes (laughs) But, uh, all right, yeah, great. Um, You did mention you wrote a book. Uh, Can people find that on Amazon?
1: They can. Uh, It's available hardback, paperback, and now on Kindle. A lot of people kept writing me saying, why isn't this on Kindle? I don't know why, but now it is. Uh, You can find it on Amazon. You can find it through Whip Whip and Stock, which is the publisher, uh, through Barnes & Noble, Target, all of those. But it's called The World in His Hands, A Christian Account of Scientific uh, Law and it's antithetical competitors.
0: Sweet. I got to get one of those. I'm going to buy one of those as well. Um, but yeah, really look, I, I, yeah, we just appreciate you, Chris. Thanks so much for everything you're doing for the Lord. Your work's never in vain. Um, thank you for taking the time to swoop down to us peasants uh, and, and rookies and some of these things. And we're very appreciative of uh, your efforts and uh, the ministry as a pastor, teacher, and uh hanging out with some uh some uh some guys like us
1: thank you so much for having me on you guys have been very helpful uh, in addressing these things and uh i would i would let the listeners know to go check out all the other podcasts you guys have had some really great guests
0: yeah yeah we brag about john frame quite a bit but uh i don't know how that happened but we're grateful for it um <clears throat> but, yeah, man. Yeah. And also, listeners, go check out Chris's podcast with uh, Brian Knapp. We had Brian Knapp on before. If you haven't listened to that, go check it out. Uh, and it's called Revelationary Apologetics. You can find them on YouTube. Go like and subscribe, help promote them, get them out there. Um, also, check out Choosing Hats, wherever that uh, uh, URL is out there. I'm sure you can find it. Um, and uh buy uh chris's book and maybe he'll get get ability to get some ice cream or something um which would be really cool but uh until next time this is root and revelation podcast where we seek to make god's revelation our foundation on all of life love you guys take care